Matthew seven fifteen through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. I've heard a lot of sermons, a lot of articles, a lot of commentaries on this passage. Um, They all tend to end up going the route of uh, shame and fear and guilt, uh, basically asking the kind of question, are you doing enough to prove that you are a good tree? Uh, And somewhat missing Jesus' point. Uh, The idea of make sure you're doing enough good works and cooperating with the Holy Spirit, otherwise Jesus might come, find you unprepared, and cast you out forever. That interpretation's actually been used um, from the beginning by wolves in order to terrify the sheep and keep the sheep under control. But if we look carefully at the examples, Jesus is talking about far more than outward behavior. He's talking about inward character, that manifests itself in outward behavior. Uh, The first example he uses is from the animal kingdom, wolves and sheep. Uh, A wolf comes dressed as a sheep, looking just like a sheep. But inward, they act like wolves because they're ravenous. You can't change the character of a wolf by putting a sheep's pelt on him. He will still continue to act like a wolf. Uh, And wolves only have one goal. They want to be in contact with as many sheep as possible. And if they can remove the fear from the sheep and convince the sheep that they're very nice and kind and polite, godly people, uh, the sheep will bare their throats for the wolves and end up being devoured. Uh, Because we've lost sight of what Jesus is talking about here, uh, we have uh, ended up throwing a great many sheep to the wolves. Uh, And that's become more and more apparent just in the last few years. Um, It is a continual thing. You will see that wolves are finally being exposed as wolves. And even then, we have a hard time taking Jesus' words seriously. They will say, well, he's he's just had a rough time. Or, well, this was just uh, some inappropriate behavior. Or this was an anomaly. This was, you know, it's not characteristic of his entire mission and everything that he does. But the fact is, they acted like wolves because they are wolves. I'm going to use one public example, and I'm not going to be ashamed of it at all. Uh, It just came out this week. When I was in Colorado Springs 20 years ago, longer than that, I think, the man who was the pastor of the biggest church in town was named Ted Haggard. He uh, was on the front of... uh, Time Magazine once, the president of the Evangelicals Association. He made himself famous by coming out strongly against uh, uh, gay marriage and the gay lifestyle until he was exposed uh, as um, carrying on with a gay prostitute in Denver every Thursday night, buying methamphetamine from him and um, spending the evening with a gay prostitute who outed him because he got tired of the hypocrisy, strangely enough. 
Um, anyway, uh, Ted Haggard was deposed from the ministry and did all the requisite crying and weeping and sorrow, and I'm so sorrow, sorrowful for all of this, and went to do the mandatory six months retreat out of the public eye and spent his money on a really good rehab center, um, and then came out uh, and came back very quietly and started pastoring a church again. And I asked myself, who on earth would attend this guy's church? Well, a lot of people, as it turns out. Anyway, yesterday I read that Ted Haggard has once again been accused over the years of molesting the male children in his church using methamphetamines. Why is that? Is it because he continually falls? That's his line. But the truth is what Jesus says right here. He does these things because he's a wolf. And because the church will not apply this except to the others. We as reformed people are very comfortable with saying that uh, those people over there are wolves. The Roman Catholics, of course, we know they're full of wolves. Pentecostals, a lot of wolves there. But when it comes to our own, our own buddies, our own favorite celebrity preachers, our own, we overlook it, we ignore it, we attack the sheep rather than say, this guy's a wolf. And it's exactly what Jesus is warning us of. A, another perfect example, his fall came as quite a shock to people that followed him, but that was Ravi Zacharias. Um, they blasted and sued everybody to keep his victims' mouths shut. And everyone else called these poor women liars um, over and over again, destroyed their reputations until they finally had to acknowledge after Zacharias' death that the whole thing was true that he was exactly what everyone said he was, which was a wolf. What's the characteristic of a wolf? We talked about the false shepherd last Sunday in the sermon. A wolf is what Ezekiel warns us of in Ezekiel 34. It's a false shepherd, a shepherd who, uh, well, Jesus is actually using false shepherd, false prophets here. It's a shepherd who uses the sheep to satisfy his own lusts. Rather than leading the sheep to green pasture, he's using the sheep to enrich himself, to make himself fatter, to bolster his own self-esteem, to uh, amass power over people. Some people just really enjoy having power over others, um, and so forth. This is what the whole scripture is warning us about. And so now Jesus is warning us about the same thing. He's not warning us against publicans and sinners. Um, those are the people that don't put on sheep's clothing. They are who they are. And Jesus came for the lost sheep, as we saw last week. He's warning us about this. In his day, it would have been the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the Sanhedrin class, who was using their power to amass control over people and to fatten themselves at the expense of the wolves. So that, or the expense of the sheep. So that's the example of um, that Jesus uses from the animal kingdom. The next example is from the, uh, the kingdom of plants, um, vines and figs and thistles. This is a very familiar statement to the Jewish mind. It's one used throughout all the prophets. Uh, Israel was an agricultural society, uh, vineyards, figs. Uh, all of those were very, very common. A farmer made their living on them. And so when Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, 
um, is uh, is speaking to Israel as the vineyard of God. Um, he says, what does a farmer do with a vine that doesn't have any fruit on it? Or a vine that brings forth wild grapes that are unusable? What does he do with that? And, well, the answer is he digs it up and throws it out. The point is that a vine that doesn't bring forth fruit is only taking up space. And the solution is not, now you guys better get busy and go out and start producing some fruit. How on earth do you do that? If the thistle's a thistle, it's not going to bring forth fruit. The fact is that every vine in the history of the world from Adam on has not brought forth fruit. And so God, even though he did everything that he could to the vineyard of Israel, he even said, what more, uh, what more would I do to you that I haven't already done? Um, was it my fault as your husbandman that you didn't bring forth fruit? And the answer is, of course not. It was Israel's own fault. They were the wrong sort of vine. It's a matter of character. What is in the heart comes out. This is the point that we have to see very clearly, or we're going to miss the whole point of the gospel. We tend to look... Whenever we get afraid... And we start wondering about whether God's going to bless us as a nation, as a society, as a family, whatever it might be. What we start doing is we start looking at scapegoats. Find the reason why God isn't blessing us and then remove them. And then that, that'll... Uh, Shirley Jackson touched on this in a great short story, The Lottery. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It'll, it'll depress you. Uh, an excellent short story. Um, remove the scapegoat. Stone it to death. And then God will give you the blessing. And so you start looking for the scapegoat. The problem is, we start to think that then what we have to do is we have to force people to start bringing forth the right sort of fruit so that God won't punish us. And so then the right sort of fruit becomes those things that me and my tribe approve of. And the wrong sort of fruit is those things that you and your tribe do. And so the solution is to destroy, to, to wipe out with shame, to crush underfoot you and your tribe so that me and my tribe will flourish because we are very, very obviously God's people. Anybody can see that. But the problem is, here's the problem with the example of the vineyard. The vineyard didn't bring forth fruit. God himself tended Israel. They had the best of the prophets, the best of the kings, the best of the priests, naturally speaking. They had everything. And what did they bring forth? Hatred, strife, adulteries, fornication, witchcraft, and all of, all of the above. So God, very justly, could have destroyed all of them. And he could have created a whole other race under Adam. But God is merciful, and he had a different plan. Before we get to that plan was, let's look at the fruit, then, that God requires. What is this fruit? Um, it's very... Often you will see, uh, let's see, I read today about uh, the fruit of um, correct doctrine. None of this postmodern garbage. All this correct doctrine, we've got to be firmly established on the truth. But let's let scripture itself tell us what the fruit is. Of course, when we talk about fruit, we immediately go to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And then we'll see why this stuff can never come by law. How do you command love? I've used that example before. 
You can't command someone to love any more than you can command a fig tree to bring forth a thorn or a thorn bush to bring forth a grape. Love flows from hearts that have received love. Love flows from renewed hearts. But we can't mistake this and say that then God doesn't require love since it's impossible for natural man to love God. God's requirement of love is still absolute. He still requires exactly what he created man to do. And thus, even Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, everybody go and do that. You see what the problem is? Or the next one, joy. Joy is a requirement. God tells the church, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst. Do you take joy in the fact that God is dwelling in our midst, even though in all the pain and all the turmoil and all the grief that we have on this earth? Do we still long for that day when we will rejoice in the presence of God? Is that what causes our hearts to sing? Peace. Do we strive for peace? The book of Proverbs says, Cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Strife and reproach will cease. Paul tells us in Romans 14, Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. And yet, see, our natural response whenever we see someone doing things differently than we think they ought to be done is to go tell them how they ought to be doing it. Are those the things that make for peace? Are those the things that edify one another? Patience. Patience is seen in contrast to pride. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon says, The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient is in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The proud in spirit is always looking back to everything they've accomplished. The patient in spirit is looking forward to what God is accomplishing. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Gentleness. Isaiah says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. And here's, I think, where a lot of uh, the people in my tribe, in my upbringing, in my reform circles, we are so quick to stamp out any smoking flax. Um, we are quick on the guard. We have, um, uh, we have uh, correct doctrine OCD. Uh, we're like monk. We walk into a room, and if everything's not exactly in order, he can't concentrate on anything else. So, you know, walk into a, any Reformed church and try saying the word potluck and watch people's heads as they go, pot providence, because they're so terrified that you might actually be worshiping Lady Luck if you say the word potluck, that they have to correct you. Ah, a bruised reed he will not break. What happens to people with their struggle for sin? Can they actually confess that to their pastor, to their uh, elders, the things that they have gone through? Can they trust their brothers and sisters with that? Or are we just ready to crush someone underfoot? The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that God is pleased with, is patience and gentleness. We looked at this last week. The false shepherds were one that, according to Ezekiel, they have ruled over the sheep with force and cruelty. And so they were all scattered because there wasn't a shepherd. 
What happens when the wolf is in charge of the flock? The sheep scatter. What happens when the false shepherd is ruling over the sheep with cruelty and force? The sheep scatter. The word we use for that today is deconstructed. They're trying to make sense of their faith because everything they thought they believed in has been crushed because they've been ruled over by a wolf or ruled over with force and cruelty by a false shepherd. Diane Langbird said the biggest mission field right now is the traumatized. She's exactly right. But we've got to first figure out what gentleness means before we can minister to the traumatized. Goodness. Proverbs says the desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Faith. Isaiah told Ahaz, if you will not believe, you will not be established. A faithful man is a man who's established his feet are on solid ground. A faithful woman is one who knows her Savior and knows who he is and has solid ground to stand on and it pours out of her. Faith is believing what God says and trusting in his promises. And faith always leads to meekness. Meekness is an interesting word. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an interesting word because literally what it means is someone at the bottom of the power chain. Whatever the power chain, whoever's at the bottom. So it's oftentimes in Hebrew, it can be translated poor, it can be translated afflicted, it can be translated oppressed, abused, outcast, meek, humble. That's what it means. We get this turned around because we have this weird view of the word humble. Um, it comes from, you know, you give somebody a huge award and what do they do? They stand in front of everybody and say, I'm so humbled that you all think I'm wonderful. Well, that's a different word, humble, than what the scripture is talking about. For us to say, oh, I'm so humbled, means that we don't know what humbled means. Humbled means you are in a position where you have no strength, no power, the wicked are crowing over you. Humbled means Hezekiah in Jerusalem, surrounded by Sennacherib's taunting army. Humbled means laying flat on your back naked while the plows of the wicked are driving over the top of you. Now that's Psalm 129. Humbled means no strength. No one will listen to you. No one will pay attention to you. That's what the word literally means in the Hebrew. Metaphorically, as a fruit of the Spirit... It's when God removes away all of our strength and all of our confidence in the flesh so that we will learn to trust in him alone. That's not something you can put on. That's something that's taught in the fires of affliction. That's something that's taught in the nights of despair. Psalm 138, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. There's that word again, Anon. Isn't that an interesting thing? The Lord is on high, but he looks at those people that can't get anybody to pay attention to him at all. The ones who have filed police report after police report and just gets buried in the basement. The one that doesn't have someone with the video cameras rolling while they've been beaten. Uh, all of those people that can't get any help on earth. The godly ones, whether they've gone through that or not, they will go through that spiritually 
where all of their hope in themselves is removed. That's what meekness is. It's having no confidence in the flesh so that you might know Christ in the power of the, Re of the Reformation, the power of his resurrection. Meekness leads to self-control. I've restrained my foot from every evil way, the psalmist says. Uh, Proverbs 10, the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Ultimately, when we look at the fruits of the Spirit, as we look at those honestly, and then we hear what Jesus says, a false prophet, you will know him by his fruit. Who on earth can bring that sort of fruit out? Ultimately, there's only one vine that brought forth that fruit, which is why Jesus said, I am the true vine in John 15. So let's pause and think about that. When, we, when I went through John 10 years ago, maybe it's time to do it again. I went through John 10 years ago, I preached several sermons on the I am passages. When Jesus used the I am, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, the life, I am the light of the world, he used a specific Greek phrase that was emphatic. It meant that I, as opposed to these others you may have heard about, am the true one. I am the one that they were talking about before in the prophecies, in contrast to the false ones. And so in contrast to Israel, and by extension every human being that's walked on the face of the earth, Jesus is the true vine that brings forth the fruit that is pleasing to the Father. Because every one of those things that we call the fruit of the Spirit were all said of Jesus Christ. That was his character. That was his nature. That's what flowed out of him. Imagine yourself as a cup filled to the top. And when you're bumped, the liquid spills out. What spills out when your cup is bumped? What spills out of all of us is, naturally speaking, hatred, rage, bile, self-centeredness, selfishness. What spilled out of Jesus when his cup was bumped was love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Because it wasn't an act with him. It was who he was. I am the true vine. But he didn't stop there. He said, every branch in me will bring forth fruit. And I think I've talked about this before, so repeat, uh, uh, forgive me if I'm saying this twice. But I love this. Verse 2 of John 15, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And at first, I thought of that as being terrifying. And then somebody turned me on to the Greek phrase that's translated there, takes away. The other translation, it's actually in the footnote of the New King James, is he lifts up. It's the same word in Greek. You have to look at it from the context. A branch in Jesus that's not bringing forth fruit, needs to be lifted up. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, he says, if the, tree, if the branch doesn't abide in me, it's going to wither and die, and then it's going to be thrown in the fire. If we start saying, oh, yeah, i got to start bringing forth good fruit, then you're not abiding in Christ, and your branch is going to wither and die, and it's going to be thrown into the fire. More on that in a second. But here, Jesus as the true vine Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You see what he's saying? 
it's such a beautiful thing. But what I want to focus on here is with him as the true vine, this means that naturally speaking, every false prophet, every prophet in the world that preaches anything else other than abiding in Christ will always bring forth bad fruit. That's something to think about, isn't it? The only message that will bring forth good fruit is abiding Christ, the gospel. A false prophet has no desire of bringing anybody to Christ or uniting anyone to Christ because the fact of the matter is Christ will not give his glory to anyone else. A true shepherd who is pointing to the good shepherd a true shepherd must decrease so that he must increase. John the Baptist said this when they said, Hey, Jesus is baptizing more disciples than you are. And John said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. There the figure of the bride and the bridegroom, together in this unity, in this bond of love, Jesus and his church, pictured in the Song of Songs and pictured in the, in the glorious marriage bed, this coming together of one flesh. It's the same thing from another angle of abiding in Christ. It's the union of the Holy Spirit where his life becomes our life. And the true shepherd, like John, seeks for all of his sheep, to be united to Christ. And to do that, he cannot unite them to himself. Calvin has an interesting thing. Calvin, on that passage, he says, He who marries a wife does not call and invite his friends to the marriage in order to prostitute the bride to them. So how much worse is it when a minister views the bride of Christ as a prostitute to be taken to satisfy his own lusts. And what will God think of that? Christ does not call, Calvin goes on to say, Christ does not call his ministers to the office of teaching in order that they might claim dominion over the bride, but so that they might lead the bride to Christ. And if one thing characterizes this age more than anything else, it's ministers having dominion over the bride of Christ. And that's an affront to God himself. Unless one abides in the vine, one cannot bring forth the fruit that delights God. So, a false prophet then, how will you know them? You will know them by their fruits. He might speak great and swelling and wonderful words. He will still be a sinner. But I want to clarify what this means about him bringing forth fruit because there will come a time in every ministry because God himself does it, where the prophet is tested. The prophet is tested, are you going to follow the lamb wherever he leads, or are you going to be a sheep and devour the, be a wolf and devour the sheep you've given to your care? They're going to be tested, and the fruits will then come out. The works of the flesh... Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the works of the Spirit. We know that. 
We're going to talk about the testing in just a second. Let's first look at what the works of the flesh are. The works of the flesh come when we don't abide in Christ. When we're not approaching God by faith in Christ alone, but we're approaching God with our own works, our own wisdom, our own tribe, our own culture, and all of this goodness that we think we might have. What actually comes out of that is adultery and fornication and cleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, witchcraft, all of those sorts of things that we use to control and domineer over other people. That's what always comes. When the Reformers talked about the marks of the church, oftentimes in Reformed churches, that's minimized to saying, well, yeah, we practice excommunication, it's a mark of the church. That isn't what they meant. The, the medieval church practiced excommunication. It wasn't that that they meant. What they meant was this. Are there the fruits of the Spirit in the congregation? Is the congregation growing in love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance? Because those are the marks by which Christ's church is known. Not only the word and sacrament which unite us to Christ, but then the fruit that flows from that. The medieval church was based on a system of power, degradation, shame, and guilt. And therefore it brought forth the fruits of the flesh. Everything it was trying to avoid. But they sowed to the flesh, so they reaped corruption. In a controversial statement, which I will make right now, that's the problem with Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism can only be built on a foundation of flesh because it depends upon power and money and politics. And so it can only bring forth the fruits of the flesh because only abiding in Christ will bring the fruit that is pleasing to God. The government has an important role to restrain wickedness, and to promote good works. That's what Paul says, give him the sword. Uh, let him do it. It's not the kingdom of God. We as believers promote the kingdom of God, which is uniting people to Christ so that they can bring forth good fruit. Our churches are full of false prophets that are devouring the sheep because we let them. Because we go to them thinking that they are somehow going to overcome our flesh by sowing more to the flesh. So how can you tell? Remember this whole passage is how can you tell the difference between a false prophet and a, and a true prophet? Well, a true prophet is united to Christ. Therefore, there's going to be the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and the works that will be evident. Uh, love, joy, patience. How does he respond when you ask him a question after the service? Does he feel threatened and revile you? How dare you question me? How does he respond when you need to talk to him about a, a, a very, very deep issue that you're having? But there will come a time in every prophet's life, every pastor's life, every ministry, every church, where they will be tested, where their fruits will be revealed for all to see. Recently, what that one has been is called the Church 2 movement, uh, where there have been countless women that have come forward and said, I reported this to the pastor, and they made me sign a non-disclosure agreement. They paid me under the table. They shut me up. They would not let me speak. See, the test came, and they proved 
that they didn't care for the sheep. They were wolves and always had been. You can see the wolves on social media ravaging, devouring, crushing, using their words to destroy. Those who revile others, mock and scornfully use others, abuse and drive away the sheep, who won't sit down and talk to the sheep about concerns they have. What do you do when one of the sheep comes to you and says, by the way, the elder in your church, who's the biggest supporter of your new building program, has been molesting his wife and children for years. What do you do then? This is when you will know them by their fruits. The true character must come out. You cannot forever pretend to have the fruits of the Spirit. They will be tested. What happens when they're tested? That's the question. And this is why we abide in Christ. We don't have the strength, and we know that. So we abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ means what Paul said. We have no confidence in the flesh. We unite ourselves more and more to him and to his strength by the power of the Holy Spirit. We properly examine ourselves, not being afraid and fearful of what we're going to find, but bringing it to him for cleansing and healing. And remembering this, abiding in Christ is not this big trick. It's just this. Jesus said, if an evil father gives good gifts to his children, how much more will your father give the spirit to those who ask? Simply asking for wisdom asking for strength. And then because we know our Father is good, we can believe him when he says, I will provide all that you need, for you have a very powerful Savior. A wolf is not interested in a very powerful Savior. A wolf is interested in establishing a name for himself. That's a different thing. Christ has never promised that we're going to build huge churches and huge buildings and huge building programs. In fact, one of the hardest things to get through your head is sometimes God calls you to minister from the bottom of a pit or from prison or as an outcast or wherever God has placed you. But abiding in Christ, what he's promised is that he has riches beyond compare. And to all of God's people, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But we know that we don't have that in our strength. So we cry out to him daily and we say, Lord, give me a new heart. Create in me a clean heart so that when that day comes, I will be found in you. And then the confidence to say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And that day comes, Christ is not going to abandon us. And yeah, he might take away our riches and our building and our whatever else, but he won't ever abandon us, and he won't take his spirit from us. With that, we will close, and let's close in prayer.